With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, December 19th, the Holiday Swirl Edition. I'm Alison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mother of Harry, five, Sam, almost three, and Wally, nine months, who, by the way, is a monster baby weighing in at 23 pounds at his last checkup. Holy moly. <laughs> uh, I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is eight, and Harper, who is six. Who I think weighs like the same as Wally. Yeah. Well, we yeah. had a we had like a four year old over the other day who was wearing the same size diapers as our nine month old. So, <laughs> yep, it's all wow. in the breast milk. Wow. Um, on today's show, we're going to talk about how interfaith families approach the holiday season with Susan Katz Miller, the author of a new book called "Being Both: Embracing Two Religions in an Interfaith Family," and then parenting hate reads. Those often New York Times, sometimes Atlantic, sometimes Slate, stories about and for parents that seem written to intentionally enrage us all, and yet we can't stop reading them. But first, our parenting fails or triumphs for the week. Dan, you go first. Uh, I have a triumph. Oh, another triumph. Yes. Uh, I'm really, I'm posing myself in this podcast as an excellent parent. (laughs) But don't worry, it's all going to collapse eventually. Um, So my triumph this week is that uh, I triumphed last night in um, actually helping my daughter with her homework in a useful, non-annoying, non-judgmental way, I think. So I find Lyra's, my older daughter's, math homework to be, like, totally bewildering sometimes. Like, what is, grade is she in? I'm sorry. She is in third grade. Third grade. Okay. So it is, it, the, it is full of jargon and, like, phraseology that I find totally alien. Um, and I never thought I would be one of those parents who is, like, always bemoaning the new math. Yeah. Right? But now yeah. I have sort of turned into that because I just don't know the answers to her homework, not because I couldn't do the math, but because I don't even understand, like, what the questions are asking. It's like, more like foreign language homework <laughs> yes. than, like, math homework. Put the, um, put the number in the five counter. Yes. I know. It's, it doesn't make any sense. But so anyway, so she has a big test today. I think she's taking it like right now. And she was very nervous about it. Um, and she had this study guide that she had done. And so I used that study guide and made a bunch of like new study questions for her and talked with her about the ways to work them out. And I helped her identify areas where she sometimes makes mistakes. But anyways, I felt useful. And at no point during this did I say, your teachers are stupid. What is this bullshit? Which is what I often <laughs> do um so anyways i I felt like that was a triumph that's great i recently had we had a a french couple whose son is friends with my son at a birthday party and they were saying how now that there's homework in kindergarten it's been very hard for them because they realize how poor their english is they don't understand the math directions and we were like oh no it's not your it's it's not not, yeah yeah uh, okay, so mine is a triumph. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Mine is a fail. I'm, sa- I'm <laughs> oh, so sad. <laughs> you had me so wrong. hopeful. No, and I'm bummed about it because <laughs> last week was a fail, and the week before when we recorded a test episode that no one will ever hear, it was also a fail. So I've got to focus on succeeding. But first, I just want to thank the listeners who wrote in with middle child tips from last week. That was really it was really great to hear from all of you. Um, my fail is actually one that I think only parents can relate to, but it's a little more of a marriage fail than a parenting fail. But uh, (laughs) last week, my husband had to work 
late or had work obligations almost every night and instead of just sucking it up and getting the kids fed and bathed and homeworked and to bed um i was seething with rage <laughs> and instead of understanding that there was would be a week in the future when my husband will have to do way more parenting than i will because i'll have work obligations i just again seethed with rage um so only a few days out i can now see that it would have been better if i would have just sucked it up but it's really hard to be rational in those situations or it's really hard for me um, and this is a repeat fail. So in the future, I'm going to really try to do better. But that's my fail. But so did it manifest itself in parenting in any way? Uh, uh, I mean, did, did that rage transfer onto your children? Um, uh, sure. Did you feel I mean, like I had... you, you like covered it up well. No, I mean, I'm certainly I'm sure I was short tempered with them. Um, but but I... like more short tempered than usual, Allison. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is that unbelievable that it could <laughs> even get shorter? <laughs> The shortness of my temper. Has. I just know how short-tempered you are with me. <laughs> okay, first topic. All right, well, Hanukkah is over. Christmas is coming. And there are a lot of families in America who celebrate both those holidays, like my co-host Allison's, for example. Now, if I was a kid and my parents asked me, well, do you want to celebrate one or the other? My answer would obviously be both because more presents. Uh, but for parents and interfaith families, it can be a fraught and confusing time with parents worried about giving short shrift to one tradition or offending the grandparents on one side or the other or confusing their kids about just who Jesus was exactly. Uh, But we are joined today by Susan Katz-Miller, who's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family, a book that just came out this fall. And she's going to talk to us about interfaith holidays uh, and how her family manages and how other people's families, like Allison Benedict's, can also manage and thrive. Uh, So thank you for joining us, Susan. Glad to be here. So, Susan, tell us, to start with, can you just tell us how does your family approach these winter holidays? How have they throughout your your children's existence? So, we celebrate everything with gusto, con brio. Uh, We try to keep the holidays separate because we're trying to give each of them, in this case Hanukkah and Christmas, its own meaning, its own space, and not mix them together. So we did Hanukkah at Thanksgiving. It's over. Mm -hmm. And now we're doing Christmas. We don't put dreidels and menorahs on our Christmas tree. There are a lot of interfaith families that do that. Um, Some of those are families that are doing both holidays in a more secular way, a cultural way. Um, But in our family, we are teaching our children the religious meanings of each holiday. And so that's one of the reasons that we try to sort of give them each space. Did you grow up in an interfaith household or did you grow up being raised one way or the other? Well, I am an interfaith child. Mm -hmm. My father is Jewish. My mother was raised Episcopalian. And they agreed to raise us as Jews before they got married. But my mother never converted. And part of what I write about in this book is that all interfaith children know that they are interfaith children, no matter what label you give them, whether you do no religions or one religion or the other or both, they're still going to have those formative experiences, for instance, with extended family. So even if you label your interfaith children Jewish, they're going to go to churches for weddings and funerals on the Christian side of the family. And so our family and a lot of families now that are doing this in an intentional way, educating children in both, want our kids to understand what they are seeing and experiencing when they go to those family holidays and when they go to church. So how do you explain to your kids, it's interesting that you're saying you guys both you approach this 
as you know, you're religious, you're not secular, you're, you, you both approach your religions right. in a religious way. How do you, I, I imagine many questions from your children come up. How do you explain to them what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be Christian, what each of their identities mean? That's well, a big question, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> also, could you prove to us that God exists? That would be great. No, I don't, you know, I mean, we could take it in a small way, but, you know, if they want to know the meaning of Christmas and... So we, so we tell them the story of Christmas and that it is about the birth of Jesus. And what bothers a lot of people when we tell them we're doing both is the Jesus question. I, I mean, I feel like that's maybe part of what you're getting at. What we teach our kids is there are a lot of ways of looking at Jesus. You could look at him as a historical figure, as a rabbi, as a political rebel, as a mysterious metaphor, as a messiah, as a son of God. And we teach them that you can't assume what someone else thinks about Jesus or about anything else based on their religious label. So someone could say, I'm a Christian, but you don't really know what they think about Jesus. Uh, a lot of progressive Christians wouldn't necessarily say that they believe that Jesus is their personal savior or a messiah in a very traditional way. And so we're giving our children access to all of these possible beliefs, and we're telling them, when you grow up, you will make your own decisions about religious practice, about spiritual tools, about what you think about God, about what you think about Jesus— all human beings have to grow up and make those decisions, whether they're born into an interfaith family or a single faith family. Right. Well, I mean, that's what I sort of like about this about this particular tradition in your family is that that's not that different from the way that religion is dealt with in our house, which is in which I guess we are a kind of an interfaith family in that we, my wife and I, come from different denominations of Christianity, but we but they're very comparable and. So when we go to church and when we talk about religion, it's functionally the same way. We we are exposing our kids to these traditions and we want to talk them through it and we try to stress that there are all kinds of people who believe all kinds of different things um, and that when you get older, you will probably end up making this choice for yourself. And it will be I mean, one of the things you talk about in your book, Susan, that I thought was really interesting is that kids tend to figure out pretty quickly that those decisions when they grow up are going to be based not only on their own beliefs – but on who they end up marrying or not marrying or being with or being solo and what where they live and what church or, or temple or whatever is closest to them and most convenient. You know, they understand as they become teenagers that these decisions are based on all kinds of things in your life uh, and, and that you can make an argument for an interfaith upraising – upraising – upbringing uh, as being just sort of the first step in in the long religious education that many people end up undertaking as they get older anyway. Right. I mean, a lot of us keep shifting, keep making those decisions over and over again throughout our lifetimes. And that's what, say, Pew Research has shown, this incredibly high rate of flexibility and fluidity in religious identification in America. I want to ask you about, like, the nitty-gritty of Hanukkah and Christmas. Yeah. Okay, so when Hanukkah ended, did you just, like, put away all the Hanukkah shit, like all the menorahs and everything? <laughs> Is it in a box and gone? Well, that's but, what you do anyway, right? Well, but, but, but I don't know. If you're, if you are like, trying to give equal weight to the holidays in some way, do you maybe leave them out for a while so that 
It's not just like a binary. It Thank God this is over now onto the presence. Right. right. The real so, presence. <laughs> so, no, I want to explain something. We give equal weight to the two religions, but mm. that does not mean that we give equal weight to Hanukkah and Christmas. Oh, interesting. Because Hanukkah is a really minor festival in the Jewish calendar. Mm-hmm. And it's been really blown up in response to Christmas. Right. As a Christmas alternative. Right. Yes. And we don't do that because our kids don't need to get a bunch of Hanukkah presents because they aren't getting Christmas presents. Because guess what? They are getting Christmas presents. Oh, man. So, That's a bummer for the kids. Yeah, yeah. We did an end run around this. So a, a lot of interfaith families doing both, one of their dilemmas around Christmas and Hanukkah is how to control the present situation, yeah. especially when you have family on both sides giving them presents. So we have actually, my kids are teenagers now. They didn't get any Hanukkah presents this year. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm kind of a Grinch, so to speak. But I think part of <laughs> part of that is, you know, we're making Hanukkah the appropriately minor festival that it is in the Jewish calendar. Much more important in the Jewish calendar would be Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Passover, uh, Sukkot, things you probably haven't heard of. Uh, and so we do all of those as well. And Hanukkah is small-ish. I mean, it's a lovely, lovely holiday. We light the candles, but there isn't a lot of other stuff to put away. We don't do Hanukkah decorations. Mm-hmm. And we do do Christmas decorations because that is traditional. Mm-hmm. Allison, Let, how do you guys handle it? Well, I just want, you sound so well adjusted. I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> in my it's household, it's, it's very fraught as the word that Dan used in the introduction. Um, did did this happen early for you, or were your first few Christmases as a mother difficult? I'm I'm guessing that you you're the one. Yes, you're the one bringing the Judaism to the I, family. I I I I play the Jew in this marriage. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but and and I was raised Jewish. I learned Hebrew. I had a bat mitzvah. I bring that Jewish knowledge, and I I am Jewish. I, I identify myself as Jewish and as interfaith. So, and I reserve the right to identify myself differently at different times with different people. This is sort of a hallmark of people with complex identities. Uh, But yeah, you know, we are the second generation into this now. So I grew up with a Christian mother. We celebrated Christmas, even though we were raised Jewish religiously. So I've had all my life to get used to this. I know there are Jewish parents who are intermarried who struggle with, say, whether or not to have a Christmas tree. My mother and father went through that, so I don't have to go through it. I'm comfortable with it. I In, in our family, this is how it works. I mean, I am Jewish, and my husband would say that he's nothing. Um, he was raised um, by a Russian Orthodox mother and a father who's now pretty, um, you know, I don't know, pretty Christian. <laughs> but um, but he doesn't believe anything, and his, his, you know, line to me is that he's not Christian because he doesn't... Um, believe in Jesus Christ. And so 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 the only tradition that he brings really to the family is Christmas, which is very important to him. And so when we got married and kind of negotiated this stuff early on, we decided that although we would raise the kids Jewish, we would we would have a Christmas tree and we would celebrate Christmas with his family, which I'll be honest, was really hard for me for a long time, even though he was sort of doing everything for me, going to synagogue for the high holidays and sort of jumping through hoops and cooking Seder, this one thing for me was really, really difficult because I think when you're raised in a Jewish household, come holiday time, come December, like you define yourself by what you don't celebrate. So you don't define yourself necessarily in that you celebrate Hanukkah because I think even as a kid you realize Hanukkah is kind of lame. But it's that you don't (laughs) – 
No, it is. But it's <laughs> yeah. that you don't celebrate Christmas. You're like, these, these are the things that Jews don't do. And so in order for me to start doing them and for me to start doing them with my kids was difficult. That has passed. And, and now I really love getting the tree. I love going to be with his family. That's, you know, that's part of our yearly tradition. And I and I really enjoy it. But um, there's not much of a religious component to it. I mean, at least so with him, there's not. We don't go to church. Um, and his his mother and like, you know, the sort of extended family, they sing some songs that are, you know, more religious that are beautiful. And that's fine. But um, I mean, I and and if they did go to church, we would go um, because that's what's part that that is what's what is part of being in this family. <laughs> but it would be difficult for me. And I and my oldest son just started kind of asking questions this year um, about what he is. And I find those questions so hard to answer. Um, I think partly because I am Jewish in in culture and tradition, but I don't believe in God. My husband doesn't believe in God. So it's this very, it's, it's, it's such a fraught conversation. And I don't know what, I don't want him to think there are different kinds of people. Some, some kinds of people are Jewish and some kind, I mean, we're all the same. It's, it's complicated. I think it's so complicated. (laughs) I applaud you for figuring it out. Well, part, part of what I write about is the idea that if you project to your children that that this is fraught, then it'll be fraught. <laughs> are you getting a sense that I might project well, that? <laughs> no. I, yeah. what, what? <laughs> How old are your kids? They're little, five. And so you have, three you have a lot of time to get this right. Now, yeah. I, I, my feeling is that if you project the idea that being part of an interfaith family is a positive thing, that it's this we should celebrate love that transcends boundaries and differences, that they will feel positive about it, and and that's really important. And I know it's hard when you're coming from an orientation of being raised in just one religion. If you're raised Jewish and you see celebration of Christmas as something that is forbidden and counter, then there is that struggle. But a child who's born into an interfaith family has Christian heritage, no matter what your husband believes, no matter whether they ever go to church or learn about it religiously, yeah. they have that extended family, and they have the right to claim that on some level. This is what I'm saying in the book, at least. Uh, and it's worked for my family, and it's. I think it works for the young people that I interviewed and that I surveyed for the book who were brought up with this positive feeling, come out not confused, feeling positive about it. Do you feel like families who choose one or the other, it's, it is harder for them? No. I think each pathway has distinct benefits and distinct drawbacks. And for some families, choosing one is absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, in your case, if you feel strongly about it and your husband doesn't, then there's that choosing one, that's a natural solution. Mazel tov. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and in some cases, the, there's a conversion can be the right answer. Right. And in some families, doing absolutely nothing and being secular is the right answer. If both parents are secular and don't feel the need to pass on those traditions, then that works. So any pathway can work. I just feel strongly that no matter which pathway you take, that you give the child the feeling that it is positive that they are part of an interfaith family. I'm assuming that at this time of year, you've gotten some some great questions from your kids. Or maybe they're so immersed in this interfaith community that they don't know any different. Well... I hate to tell you, my kids are now 19 and 16. Yeah. So what I'll say is they enjoy both in the way that we've raised them. I mean, last night we trimmed our tree and we put out a crush because 
you know, families that do it on a secular level probably don't have a crush because then you have the little baby Jesus. We have this adorable baby Jesus. He looks like he's off Wallace and Gromit. It's a clay nativity set that we got in Brazil when we were living there. And so it's part of our family history. And when the kids were little, they weren't allowed to touch it because it would break. And now they're old enough to my daughter kind of arranges the pieces and thinks back on all those memories. And None of that requires her to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't believe that. I don't know if she'll believe that when she's an adult or not. Has she asked you what you believed when she was younger? Did she ask you what you believed? Yes, sure. Uh, And but you know they were raised in a, a, a an intentional interfaith families community where they went to Sunday school classes where there was a Jewish teacher and a Christian teacher in each classroom. And so they had ample opportunity to sort of work this out, both with me and my husband and in that classroom setting in a space that was sort of neutral. Um, We're very lucky that we live in one of the three major metropolitan areas that has groups like that, which are Chicago, New York, and Washington. Uh, But some families that are doing both don't have that. It's harder when you're trying to homeschool. Uh, It's probably easier than to pick one in some ways. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're not confused. They still call themselves Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, swirl. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where it's heading. But they seem happy and well-adjusted. Right, but it's a swirl. All, it's not like yeah. a melting pot. It's, a, it's, it's not swirl. a melting right. pot. Right. 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 You can identify the three flavors. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Susan, for coming in. Once again, Susan Katzmiller, her book is Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to Parenting Hate Reads. Last week, Amanda Hess wrote in Slate about the history and persistence of parenting hate reads, stories that she says are winkingly designed to troll us. Stories often in the New York Times style section, like the one about a company of former private chefs who now teach nannies how to cook for their charges, or a recent piece about parents who hire art sitters, babysitters that cost 5 to $15 more an hour to teach your kids to etch mice and twist bracelets and stage plays instead of just watch TV with them while they're babysitting. Uh, Dan, Amanda loves slash hates these types of pieces. How do you feel about them? I love them. Um, I read them in, I think, the the inverse way from the way that they are ostensibly presented, okay. although I think it's I think that I probably read them in the way that m- many people do, which is to say that you in a previous slate piece had separated these out into like good mommy and bad mommy pieces, right? Like pieces that are about parents who are so over the top amazing, quote unquote, in that they pay fifteen dollars more an hour for special. Uh, nannies who are artists or, um, you know, they search Google for the names of their future children to make sure that they have the absolute perfect name. Um, So those are the good mommy pieces. But I read those as a way of feeling superior to other parents because I may be crazy. Obviously, I'm a crazy parent. But the ways that I am crazy are just like slightly different enough from the ways that these parents are crazy that makes me feel superior to them. And then the bad mommy pieces I read sympathetically. They make me feel like, oh, you know what? I, I, I am bad in many ways as a parent, but at least I'm bad in ways that are similar to the ways that other parents are bad. At least I'm not alone in being a bad dad. Um, my fails are similar to other people's fails. So I love these pieces. They give me everything I need out of love-hate reading. Is that why you? you think these pieces are so popular? Because um, because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other parents as parents? Yes. 
Well, I mean, what other possible reason could there be? I mean, I'm sure, I mean, there are people like Amanda who read them just for the sheer joy of it, who don't even have kids, uh, who just really love, I guess, feeling superior to all of us, to all of us stupid breeders. Um, But I, but yes, I do think that there, I don't know any parents except for maybe Susan Katz Miller who are secure (laughs) enough in themselves to not be constantly comparing themselves to other parents. I mean, you know, I, I am a bad enough human being or I guess a like a normal enough human being that when someone else's kid is the one who is like being like having a tantrum in public I feel sympathetic but I also feel like a certain amount of joy that this one time it is not my kid who is having the tantrum in public. So do you agree that these pieces are assigned and run in order to <clears throat> kind of in order to stoke this I mean are they is the New York Times trolling us? Yeah kind of I mean I but I don't know that that is a bad thing. Like, I think that these pieces serve a useful purpose in delineating certain rational edges of parenting, right? Like, I think it is useful to the world to know that there is, there's like, here is the absolute border of where your parenting can go before you are bananas. And in not, but they are not explicitly saying a parent that hires a private chefs to teach their nanny the difference between two different grains. Um, is bananas is over is over the top? They're not saying that. They're just no. But I think that they know that. Okay. Although I would also like to state a, a slight defense of the of the moms who hire or the parents who hire na- like nannies who get trained by personal chefs. Like, we'll, we'll post in case you didn't listeners didn't read the story. We'll post it on our yeah. Our podcast so page. the idea is that there there are nannies there in. There are parents, they're in Brooklyn, um, who hire personal chefs to help train their nannies to make, like, better meals for their kids. And I guess my I think these people were actually in Manhattan just to, I think. Whatever. They're in spirit. (laughs) They're in Brooklyn, Allison. Um, But I feel like, look, obviously this is is an example of privilege, and you can interrogate this uh, along privilege-based lines if you want. But the point remains, if you have enough money to do something like this— why would you not want your kids to eat the healthiest possible food they can eat? Like, what is what is de facto bad about that? Um, I, you know, and I say this as a parent who one time came home from work and had to tell my nanny, our child's, our old, our younger child's nanny, um, that she could not please continue feeding our daughter the Lucky Charms because the Lucky Charms are daddy's Lucky Charms. They're not kid lucky charms. And so if I had the money and the ability to have nannies who cooked healthful, organic, locally grown, sustainable meals for my kids, why would I not want to do that? Like it's not their fault that they have this opportunity and are seizing it, is it? I guess not. I mean the fact that there's a market for this is just – I mean the class component of it, I can't help but gag over it. Uh, I guess – I guess that... But, like, let's take it as a given that there are always going to be parents who are wealthier than us. I guess if of all the things they could be spending their money on, like, I, I mean... I don't know I, if I I'm think I'm glad they're like, not buying gold-plated strollers. I'm glad they're not buying gold-plated stro- strollers, too, but I don't know I mean, if maybe healthy... maybe they also are. I don't know if healthy eating means, you know, trendy eating. I don't know if, like, their nanny really has to learn how to make great dishes out of kale. Like, is that really... Is that really... I mean, I'm I'm of two minds on this. On one hand, like, is there? It's not such a terrible thing to like, you know, for a day of work for the for a wonderful nanny to get to have a cooking class. On the other hand, like, they take these they show these nannies how to shop for produce, which seems 
utterly humiliating. I mean, if you really care that much about this, then when you're hiring a nanny, that should be like a factor in your interviewing process. This is like, you know, a nanny is a, is a human being like all of us. We, are, we have strengths and weaknesses. If one, if you're looking for cooking to be one of the strengths, then great. I mean, like I, a nanny can't do everything. I don't, I don't really understand like perfecting the nanny does not seem... Well, but seem... it, but on the other hand, if you're hiring for these particular skills, you're limiting yourself to a very specific set of possible nannies, probably. Uh, and if and why not think of it as giving your nanny a much more marketable skill for the next time? Whatever. I'm being an asshole about it, but the point. No, is... I mean I understand what you're saying, but like I, we've discussed this in the past. But you disagreed with me. This this particular family in the Time story, and we'll get off of the story in a second, had a white nanny from Wisconsin, oh, and right. and right. I and they were talking about how they wanted their kids to like to have a more global palette. I believe is the phrase that was used, and so that's right. one of the reasons they brought the chefs in. And my like you know line to you is like really if you want you know if you care so much about that, then maybe you could have hired like any number of Caribbean nannies or Tibetan right. nannies. I mean, like, right. you know, but you didn't. And, and fine. You could like, give the, them a global palette with a global nanny. Right. Right. Yes, that's true. But anyways, this conversation is the reason the New York Times runs yeah, these stories. Clearly. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. So what is your favorite all-time parenting hate read, Alison? Oh, no. Tricks on the spot question. I don't know. Yeah. You don't know? No. I know what mine is. Okay, go. Mine is the parent's is uh, from November 21st, 2011. It is <laughs> What's in a Name? Ask a Google by Alan Salkin. Um, it was from the New York Times, of course. Uh, and it is about the parents who wanted to name their kid Kalia, but Kalia they determined with a Google image search as a stripper name. Um, so they did not name their kid Kalia. By the way, Kalia is a beautiful Hawaiian name. Thank you very much. But they named her Kalia, spelled K-A-L-E-Y-A, because that yielded no strippers in their Google search. Um, and so it is a large story about the trendlet of parents who think so much about the names that they will eventually name their kids that they think a lot about the eventual online profile of those names and want to give them unique names that are not attributable to other things. Here's my favorite thing about the story. I have two favorite things. The first favorite thing um, is this line. Hold on. Let me find it. <clears throat> this, part of the, this part of the story is about Deborah Goldstein and her partner, Gabriella DiMaggio, who chose unique names for their boys, um, Levi and Asher. Um, neither of those names was in the Social Security Administration's list of most popular baby names. And, but then, as the story says, shortly after the couple moved to South Orange, New Jersey in 2006, they had a rude awakening. While waiting at an ice cream parlor, they heard a woman shout, Asher, at a different boy. It was two other Jewish lesbian moms with a child of the same name, Ms. Goldstein said. Google had let her down. It didn't tell us it's a unique name unless you move to a neighborhood outside New York City where other trendy Jews are moving to. So that's the reason one why I love that story. Reason two is that if you Google Kalia, K-A-L-E-Y-A now, you get nothing but a page full of um, drawings of scantily clad goth busty women because of an amazing deviant art um, account under the name Kalia, K-A-L-E-E-Y-A. And it's nothing with that. It's nothing but stripper goths. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. I'll go first. I have oh, ah, a recommendation. Go go. I'll go first. Um, first, actually, I have first I have a public service to all of our listeners. Um, I've made this list for all of you. Here are the songs on the new Beyonce album that you can listen to with your kids. Pretty Hurts, XO, and blue. Those are the ones that your kids will like and that don't that aren't about sex. Here are the songs on the new Beyonce album that are great to listen to if you want to make more kids. Blow, 
no angel, partition, and a rocket. All right, and here's my recommendation. Do you um, actually do you you don't listen to your, like you don't let your kids listen to music that you listen to that has like uh, I if sometimes it, it is on in the car or the house and I don't like worry about it that much unless it's like super explicit like whenever Kyle's mom's a bitch from the South Park movie comes on I have to fast forward really fast. But um but no, but I do like I don't put on their music players songs that I know are like super sexual or have a lot of swears in them. Okay. We're not there yet. Um, we still do. Yeah. Um, but so my actual recommendation is a lovely book um, for young readers from 2005 uh, called Once There Was a Christmas Tree. Um, it is by Jerry Smath. I'm recommending this book because it's very charming and I like its message, but also I love this book because as of last night, it is the first book that Harper, our younger daughter, has read all the way through without asking about any of the words. So it's Oh, good job, Harper. Um, but so it is a very sweet book about a family of bears who cuts down a Christmas tree and then they end up sharing the tree by, with all different families of animals in the forest where they live. And I like the book's message. I like that it is sort of sneakily inclusive, like all the animal families are sort of non-traditional. There's a, there's a single older rabbit and there's a father and a son fox and there's a then there's like a nuclear mouse family with a mom and dad mouse and a bunch of little mice, but there's lots of different kinds of families. Um, and also there's this like nice notion in the book that a family of foxes would share their Christmas tree with old man rabbit instead of just eating him, which is what would happen in the real world. So, but it's a sweet book and I recommend it. What's yours? Great. Uh, did you play Simon when you were a kid? Not Simon Says, but Simon. Oh yeah, the, with the lights, the colored lights that you yeah. press in order. Do your kids have that? No. Okay, so they still sell them. They look exactly like they did when we were little. I, um, According to the Wikipedia page, Simon was actually launched in 1978 at Studio 54. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I was just looking it up. That is an oral an history amazing that factoid. someone needs to make. <laughs> I don't really understand what that means. But anyway, uh, so my oldest son, he really likes routine and order, and he's a little bit neurotic like his mother. And we bought him Simon, and it's like, remember, do you remember that scene in Breaking? Are you a Breaking Bad fan? Uh, I may or may not remember the scene, depending on whether I got around to watching whichever episode. There's you're a watching. scene in Breaking Bad where Jesse is trying to distract a meth head who might be violent, and so he gives him a shovel, and the guy just like digs and digs and digs because <laughs> like, and that is what I thought giving Simon to my son would be like. It's not quite; it hasn't become that intense, but he likes it. It's really nostalgic for me. I really loved that when I was little. The little boop boop boop, and then you get it wrong it's like so the sounds don't bother you because they're the sounds of your childhood yeah if if you gave like a 20 year old parent that game who had never played simon right it would be be annoying to them yeah but i really i really like it i one part of parenting that i really enjoy is like you know is finding old things that still make you know that my kids still enjoy like i think last week i recommended the rescuers which was really fun to pass on to them so we watched the rescuers based on your recommendation oh and then my kids loved it oh good Okay, so that's it. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com. That's momanddad, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment on iTunes while you're there. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of all Slate podcasts. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Allison. Thanks so much for listening. Tell your friends. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.